Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Almost Here, Around the Corner Technologies. And today I have a great guest, uh, Lee Buckler. We're going to be talking about uh, cell therapy. You know, he's with Replicel. He's the president and CEO. How are you doing, Lee? I'm doing very very well, Rich. How are you? Good, good. Thanks again for being here. Um, you know, instead of me bumbling the introduction, um, would you let folks know what Replicel does and what kind of technologies you guys are working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, ha- happy to do so. So, um, you know, I, I got involved in, you know, this business of cell therapy uh, back in 2000 when it was just emerging out of um, academic research and, and the hospital-based practice of stem cell transplantation. Um, and, and, you know, in the early days, we got really um, excited about what we saw in stem cell transplantation, stem cell research, and about this idea of being able to use cells as the basis of therapeutics. Um, to the point now where fast forward, uh, you know, um, a decade and a half um, from that point, we've got a, you know, as an industry, a cell therapy in development and in clinical testing and research for almost every imaginable human um, disease or condition. And I've, you know, played a number of roles in this industry since then, but I got really excited about what Replicel was doing late 2014 um, uh, because uh, because of what I saw as a very competitive technology in very exciting clinical uh, markets um, addressing um, large sort of chronic um, um, needs in the orthopedic and aesthetic um, um, fields uh, with a very competitive technology, a very exciting sense of timing and, um, and multiple technologies. So um, just in quick, you know, just, just in brief, the company is a biotech company using cells as therapeutics. We use the patient's own cells, so that's autologous as opposed to allogeneic, where we use other people's cells. And um, uh, we started out life in, in uh, looking um, at, at, uh, at a product for androgenic alopecia, which is pattern baldness. And now we are in um, uh, chronic tendinopathy, um, skin repair, uh, with two different biologics in, um, uh, in three clinical mar- indications, and, uh, and we have a medical device as well. Wow. Well, I guess, you know, we'll go step by step. So do you have commercially um, available products that are in use? Are they all in the clinical trial stage? Yeah, we're in the, we're in the development stage um, still, Rich. So, uh, you know, we've got a, a dermal injector, a next-generation dermal injector that we believe is our um, nearest-term commercial asset. Uh, we're in the, in, okay. in the stage of building the uh, manufacturing and testing the commercial-grade prototypes for that right now. Um, we expect to get that. Um, to be the subject of a CE mark application um, for market authorization in Europe and in the hands of a licensing partner at some point next year, um, and that that'll be on the market. We got, ex- we got um, uh, you know, uh, we're very committed to the idea of, of a, uh, bringing next-generation technologies to in, uh, injectors because um, of what we were seeing in the injection of cells um, into humans, even in the hands of other people. Yeah, let's talk about the dermal ejector. What what is a dermal ejector for those that don't know? What does it do, and what is your improvement upon it? 
Yeah, so uh, you know there are there is a number of, um, of, um, of 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 materials injected in and through the skin today, um, um, both uh, as drug delivery, um, as enzymes, but also for aesthetic purposes. So if you just to focus on the aesthetic market for uh, for the moment, you know we we're um, injecting about two billion dollars worth of dermal fillers uh, into people's faces up today. These are with fairly routine standard injection technologies. Um, all the injectors today out there are subject to some degree or another to the human variability of the person pushing the plunger. And what we see as a result of that is that there's, uh, you know, it's fairly simple to say um, if you're not controlling the injection process, you're not controlling the outcome. And so because there's variability of injector talent um, and skill, there's, very, there's a, a significant variability of outcomes. And we've all seen people, um, you know, with um, aesthetic procedures that have been done that, you know, have um, have not been done optimally. Yeah, let's just say it kindly. Sure. And so we became really committed to this idea that we wanted an um, an injector that had um, um, uh, that for the very first time brought absolute precision and consistency to the injection process. So um, it, you know these kinds of dermal fillers. There's also an enzyme that the FDA approved recently called Ky um, uh, uh, Kybella. It's uh, the FDA approved it for the dissolution of double chin fat. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, injection sensitivities around that, and so you definitely want to make sure you don't inject that wrong. Um, and so we have uh, are bringing to market an injector that, for the very first time, has a push button instead of a push plunger. Um, it's electronic. It's it's wired to a touch screen, so um, it it absolutely controls uh, with with electronic precision the the depth and the action of the needle, independent of the needle's action, controls the uh, the depth or the the dose the de dose delivery, and so you can independently control you know where and how you deliver the dose relative to the needle's action, and then the other thing that's really novel about about the injector that we're excited, more importantly the the um, dermatologists that we're working with are excited about is all of these procedures that I just discussed are usually preceded by injections of local anesthetic. So you you know you go in um, you sit down in the clinic they um, they drop where they want to do the injections and they start by injecting a bunch of you know local anesthetic injections into the area that they're looking to address. Um, there's a time associated with that. There's a consumable cost associated with that. There's multiple needles associated with that, and local anesthetic into the skin actually really stings. And so that's you know uh, so what we when we were in um, designing this injector the uh, the dermatologist said look if there was any way for you to reduce or eliminate the local anesthetic that we use in conjunction with these procedures that would be a game changer and that's in fact what we've done so we have a um, uh, an element that that sits between the and the needle and the patient's skin that on contact numbs the patient's skin um, beyond the point of pain. So the needle penetrates wow. the skin um, um, in a painless fashion. So this makes it uh, you know, a big difference for the patient. It reduces the procedure time for the doctor, um, reduces the procedure cost for the doctor. The doctor also has, because of what I just also described, you know, the ability to delegate routine, routine procedures to perhaps less skilled technicians and be assured of a consistent outcome. So you know the the injector brings to uh, all the stakeholders um, you know a significant value, better patient experience, better um, you know financial outcomes uh, or financial uh, metrics and outcomes for the cl clinics involved in these kinds of procedures, and because and then, and for the, the the companies selling the injectables, 
um, uh, the uh, the injector promises to facilitate um, um, uh, more procedures. So if you look at the dermal filler market today, uh, you know the two billion dollars plus of of dermal fillers that are being sold today are largely restricted to being used for deep wrinkles. The kinds of fine wrinkles that you see across the expanse of cheeks, you know, for people who've seen too much sun or smoked or been exposed to too much environmental damage or, you know, are just predisposed to this kind of skin, can't really be adequately addressed by dermal fillers because the injection technologies that they use for injecting them don't allow for the um, even dispersion and shallow um, um, injection, for the shallow even dispersion of, of these dermal filler products. And uh, and that's what this this device promises to do. So the very first time you've got a, an electronically controlled device that can do very shallow and evenly dispersed uh, dispersed um, to product delivery um, um, in the skin that can address um, fine wrinkles. So we're very excited. More importantly, um, you know the dermatologists that we've engaged in helping us to design this um, are excited, and that's our nearest term commercial asset. Eventually, we will use this for the delivery of our cell therapies into the skin and scalp, and that was originally got what got us uh, motivated to do an injector. But we've we've identified a much nearer term commercial opportunity um, to commercialize this device for the injection of other people's products um, and to take that profit and, and put it back into the pipeline of the cell therapies that we're developing. Well, a couple of questions about the, um, the injector. Does it eliminate the need for numbing agent to first be injected? It sounds like it does because you said the item that's between the, the skin and the injector does the numbing, right? That's that's exactly right, Rich. You've you've identified. Yeah, that that's the um, that's the no pun intended the pain point that it addresses. Um, you know, so there's a there is a um, there's a U shaped call element. the product that call it the pain point, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So there's a U shaped element that sits between the needle and the patient's skin, and it uses what's called Peltier technology. Peltier technology is used in a lot of very small um, electronics for cooling. Um, it's well-established, um, you know, even off-patent technology, two metal plates with fins in between that, run, that creates cold on one plate and, and heat on the other. Um, uh, we, uh, we've been able to resurrect the patent around that technology because no one had thought of using it in conjunction with, a, with a, um, an injector. And so um, uh, we've already had issued patents in Europe on this technology, and are very excited about um, about how it might change the um, change the game in terms of um, of dermal injections. Well, quick question: Why does it um, take away the perception of pain, or does it actually, does it do, through some other mechanism stop the person feeling pain? How does it no, work? it's just numbing. It's just numbing cold, right? So if you you know I don't know oh, okay. um, uh, you know so I don't know if you've you know, spent any time in the winter, but you know, if you uh, if you touch, yeah. you know, your skin to a metal a metal flagpole, um, you know, uh, you lose sensation in your skin pretty quick. So what this does okay. is it's um, it's it's just it's just cre it's just um, I'm programmed to create um, um, temperature that's that numbs the skin uh, within the range of the uh, within the range of the element that's touching the patient's skin. And so when the needle penetrates the pa the patient's skin within that range, you simply lost sensation because it's numbing cold. Huh. So it sounds like the injectors are moving towards um, you know being entirely computer controlled. It's like they're partially they're positioned by the um, 
the person right now, and then the computer seems to do part of the work, but it seems like it's evolving and moving to the point where eventually they may be 100% computer-controlled, placed and, and administered, right? Well, you know, I think that's where that's where um, you know that's where we have the opportunity to move forward. Um, you, you know, as an industry, there's all kinds of imaging technologies, you know, that are are used even by clinical practices today. So you can take a you know a picture of of a patient's um, um, you know of a patient and upload it into the into the system, and the doctor can actually say, look, if we put 20 cc's, 10 cc's, 5 cc's, this is this is this is what you would look like, right? Um, and I think it's a short step between there, that kind of imaging technology, and 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 integrating that interface with a device that will then um, um, that will then um, uh, you know control those injections. For now, you know we haven't taken all of the art out of the process. For now, uh, as you said, um, the uh, the person holding the injector, um, you know, um, with the patient makes the decision about. Uh, you know what's the appropriate um, injection volume and where they want to do the procedures and um, and then you know they they're holding the wand um, but then they push the button and the dose gets delivered per this prescribed um, protocol that they've selected on the touch screen. Hmm. Okay, very good. Um, other products that are not quite as far along, you know, ones that relate to stem cells. Can we talk about you know one that? Uh, interest you most or that you you're excited about most yeah well you know i'll start you know maybe the most logical way is to is to start with um you know uh the evolution of the company the company started was started by two scientists one's a, an md practicing dermatologist very heavily involved in in hair research um and his phd mm -hmm. counterpart who was a scientist involved in that in that research and they made a you know a seminal discovery um really tying the cells in the hair follicle to the primary reason for pattern baldness in men and thinning hair in women, which is a condition we call androgenic alopecia. And androgenic alopecia is simply, you know, the mechanism that they helped identify um, of this condition is that one of the androgen hormones, DHT, attaches to a cell population in the hair follicle that's responsible for all the cellular actions that grow hair and uh, essentially um, decimates that cell population. There's a direct correlation between the disappearance of those cells and the disappearance of your hair follow, your hair fiber, and oh. this is the this is how the uh, the condition is, attacks uh, you know hair follicle to hair follicle at the top and sides of one's head, um, but then you you're 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 presented with the curious question of well why then do people these people still have hair at the back of their head, and right. um, again the Right. Yeah. So again, the discovery was that you know once they discovered this was the mechanism of the uh, of the condition, they looked then at the cells of the back of the head and discovered that that same cell population um, at the base of the hair follicle that I just described simply lacks the receptor on it on the outside of it for the DHT hormone to attach to and start to have its effect. And so essentially, what that means is that 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 cell population at the back of the head is immune to the condition. So we also know from a couple of decades of hair transplant surgery that you know if you can successfully remove one of those follicles from the back of one's head and all of the cells embedded in it, and and successfully transplant that to the top of the head, the affected area, uh, right. and if that transplant works, 
the cells will remain immune to the condition and continue to grow new hair fibers for the rest of your life in the existing follicle. So essentially, you know, you've replaced, um, uh, uh, you've you've put in a new follicle with cells that are immune uh, immune to the condition. Um, but that's a very bloody, messy, highly expensive, highly variable procedure that you have to do time and again, and oftentimes it doesn't work. And this, uh, you know, Rolf and Kevin, the two doctors, you know, that were um, founded the company, um, simply, uh, you know, founded the science on on a very simple hypothesis: Could we, instead of removing and transplanting whole follicles, um, isolate the cells that are responsible for growing hair? Um, um, grow millions more of them in the laboratory and right. um, successfully inject them into the scalp and essentially repopulate the existing hair follicles with a cell population that's immune to the condition. Mm. And um, that was a, you know, a giant sort of you know, scientific and clinical hypothesis uh, that they started playing around with in the lab. They learned how to isolate the cells. They learned how to grow the cells. Then they started injecting animals, and they grew animals on, or they grew hair on paw print, on paw pads. They grew whisker hairs on ears. They grew hair in all kinds of animals and all kinds of places, and right. really got excited about the potential uh, this the, this this hypothesis to work. So I got a regulatory approval to move into a phase one clinical study in Europe, and um, and we saw a pocket of responders in that clinical trial that that saw um, you know first of all the, the primary endpoint in, in in the early phase trial like that is safety, um, established safety at six months, but also observed in six months that there was a pocket of responders for which there was um, a very encouraging hair density increase. And so this got um, this got Shiseido Company, the fourth largest cosmetic in the company, the fourth largest cosmetic company in the world, excited about this product's potential. They signed a co-development deal with us, which also involved an exclusive license for Asia with the product. Um, they've moved that product into a clinical trial now in Japan. That's um, that's taking place. Um, it's a clinical research study that they're funding at two clinical sites um, in Japan, um, and um, and we get uh, we have a, uh, uh, some some data coming up very very shortly on the five year follow up of of these original um, patients in the phase one study uh, that we're excited to see and um, and announce. So that that was very the cool. first product that the company was founded around. That got. Um, that got us excited about you know while we were playing around with uh with the, the cells in the hair follicle discovered that there was another cell population that um that have uh, everything to do with the maintenance of the tissue of the hair follicle and nothing at all to do with growing of the hair fiber in the follicle so you know the hair fiber is the hair that you see uh the hair follicle is actually a tube of tissue that sits under your scalp that the hair fiber grows in so okay, some cells, egg, exactly, yeah, and so uh, and so some cells, as you will appreciate, are responsible for growing the tissue of the hair follicle, and some cells are responsible for growing the hair fiber in it. Um, there was a fibroblast cell um, uh, population in this tissue of the hair follicle that was extremely expressive of type one collagen. So fibroblasts are found throughout your whole body. Their job is to express proteins, um, and 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 the protein expression. Um, builds and maintains the connective tissue in your body. Um, turns out uh, one of those proteins uh, is that we're very familiar with is type 1 collagen. Um, type 1 collagen is particularly important to two areas uh, of your body. One is the 
layer under your skin that keeps your skin looking young and healthy and wrinkle-free. And the other, curiously enough, which I wasn't aware of and many people that I, that I um, interact with aren't aware of, is your tendons. So tendons are the thing that connect your muscle to your bone. And they have a particular right. consistency, a particular elasticity, um, and that's largely comprised of these um, very strong uh, rope-like tendrils of type 1 collagen. So when you take an ultrasound picture of a tendon, what you see is layer after layer of white strands. And that is strands of, of, of largely comprised of type 1 collagen. And so um, um, as your tendons age, as you age, and as you overuse your tendon or, um, or get micro tears in your tendon, your tendons tend to degenerate. And um, your tendons are very poorly what we call vascularized. They have very poor blood flow. So it's very difficult for new cells to come in and help repair. Yeah, because there's no right. blood flow for that for the cells to migrate very easily. And so once you've got you know a chronically injured or degenerated tendon, whether it's your ankle, your knee, tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, rotator cuff in you know degeneration, you're kind of stuck. You know there you know if if rest and physiotherapy isn't working for you, there's nothing can, that can be surgically done for you. And so um, your, you know, your orthopedic uh, surgeon, your physiotherapist will, you know, do an ultrasound, see that it's just this chronic degeneration, and essentially advise right. you to stop doing what aggravates you. Hmm. When we were learning how to isolate, you know, and grow again, these fibroblast cells, similar to what we'd done with the hair cells, um, there were some clinical collaborators of ours in the UK that published some really exciting results um, uh, looking at the potential of injecting fibroblasts into people that had chronic tendon degeneration and were reporting you know, lots of pain and loss of function and couldn't really do what they loved doing anymore. And what they showed was um, um, to really nice statistically significant values, and they published in peer-reviewed publications, a really nice regeneration of the tendon that you can clearly see in the ultrasound. You take a, a tendon that looks like a, you know, it's got lots of black holes in it and disaggregated um, um, tissue. And you, six months later, they showed really nice um, um, restoration, regeneration of these, of these well-organized um, layers and tendrils of type 1 collagen. And, and the patients were reporting, you know, um, a significant elimination, reduction, if not elimination of pain, and, um, wow. and, um, and a very nice, you know, very significant restoration of function. So that got us really quick excited about, about this. Yeah, quick question here. If there's very little blood flow to tendons, um, well, first of all, the fibroblasts, are these essentially stem cell progenitors of tendon tissue and if you inject them, why are they able to um, fix the tendon when the current cells cannot? Yeah, so, you know, uh, to put it very simply, Rich, um, you know, the resident cells are tired and old and they've been and they're exhausted, right? Their expression profile is, is exhausted and they can't keep up with the repair that the tendon is demanding of them. And oftentimes, you know, when you cut your, uh, you know, your skin, for instance, what happens is cells from, you know, from a, from a, from a, from, from the local region will rush to the area and help um, um, reorganize the tissue and, and, uh, and regenerate and repair that wound. With the tendon, 
that's not possible. You're sort of stuck with the resident cells. And if your resident cells are exhausted and their expression profile is low, um, their function is, um, has, is tired, um, they can't keep up with the demands of, uh, of, the, of the tendon for regeneration. And so essentially what we're doing, to put it, you know, to oversimplify it, is we are injecting a fresh battalion of, of recruits, if you will, um, of, 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 of fibroblasts that are young, um, highly expressive, and they go in there, the body is signaling the need for repair, and they start they start to work, and they start expressing proteins, tissue um, building, tissue repairing proteins, including, um, and perhaps most notably, uh, type 1 collagen that really we believe is tied to the mechanism of action here, the mechanism of repair. So the cells are injected um, and, um, and, and induce perhaps not only um, the kinds of signals to the resident cells, but also themselves are, recru are, are, are expressing enough proteins to affect repair. You know, whether or not, you know, they're properly called stem cells, um, you know, they're certainly cells that grow in culture, um, but we're not relying on the stemness of these cells. We're not differentiating these cells into another kind of cell. These are cells which, you know, we have a very simple philosophy of life. We take a cell population, we try and understand what it does, how to characterize it and its function. We grow more of them. So we don't try to modify them in any way. We don't gene modify them. We don't try to differentiate or change them into another cell type. We simply grow more of the cells we found, and we inject them locally to do what we think, believe they do. So in this instance, we found a cell population that's highly expressive of tissue-building proteins, especially type 1 collagen. We inject them into an area where there's a need for tissue repair. And what we've observed so far is that these cells um, express enough proteins uh, um, uh, to, to, to affect the kind of repair that's needed. Yeah, from what I've heard, and again, I'm a layperson, I don't know, I thought many adult cells don't replicate, and they won't replicate in culture. How do you so, find cells that will? So, you know, there's no doubt that these are, a, you know, that these are you know, not a fully differentiated cell. Right. So um, um, these are cells, you know, if you think of, you know, I, I oftentimes it's again, it's a very sim you know, oversimplified um, um, example. But I think of the of the stem cell to fully differentiated cell um, 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 pathway as a kind of a Christmas tree. So if you have at the very top where you put the star or the angel of the Christmas tree, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the pluripotent stem cell, the stem cell that can divide um, limitless number of times and become any kind of, of cell, um, then you know, as you move down the pathway, you have cells in the middle of the tree which are, you know, can only divide a certain number of times and can only become a certain kind of cell. And at the bottom of the tree is a, uh, is a cell population that has one job and a very limited lifetime, and they don't divide, and they don't change into any other kind of cell. They, they play a role, and then they die. So clearly, these fibroblasts, um, which is you know, even indicative in the name blast, which is a, you know, a, a pro, in the progenitor milieu of cells, is a kind of cell that's you know, partway down. It's not at the top. It's not at the bottom of the tree. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. So by studying cell populations in the body, you're able to find the ones that still have a, a life in them that can divide and be cultured. 
That's right. Yeah, uh, that's right. And and we, you know, like I said, you know, typically one thinks of of of, of stem cells um, because what you're looking to do is to take advantage. You know, there's, there's there's the two qualities of stem cells that people take advantage of. One is their ability to grow and divide, and the other is is the ability for to take a cell and then move it down that pathway, down the tree, if you will, to become another kind of cell. Uh, we're doing the former, not the latter. So we're taking a cell population and growing them, um, but not trying to differentiate them, not trying to change them, just taking advantage of the cell that they are, and that is um, a, a, a cell population that loves to, ex you know, we call it expand, right? Um, grow, you can take, you know, um, a small number of these cells and, and, and produce a large number, um, but, uh, but keeping their phenotype, keeping their characteristics as highly expressive tissue building cells uh, 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 that they are. So because the cell populations that you choose, you're just looking to replicate and reintroduce, does it mean they must be taken from the person that's going to experience the healing or can they be taken from a donor and used in multiple different people? Yeah, I think to be fair, uh, you know, the answer theoretically is, 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 is either. Um, uh, you know, there are certainly lots of people, you know, looking at both allogeneic and autologous uh, sources of fibroblasts or, you know, their, uh, you know, the, the kind of cell which is a little bit further up the tree uh, uh, from that, the mesenchymal stem cell, um, um, you know, and looking at those particularly in an allogeneic model, uh, i.e. taking from a donor. Um, we're committed at this point to the autologous model, not because we don't think it's possible to use donor fibroblasts, but because, um, you know, we actually like the idea of not having to deal with, you know, any potential rejection of the patient um, uh, and the cells that we're introducing. Uh, we have a very simple, again, a very simple philosophy of life. You know, let's not pr uh, produce any more barriers to good clinical outcomes than we than than we need to. So you know, if right. we can produce nice clinical results with an autolog with, with patients' own cells, then perhaps we could look at you know, can we replicate those results with donor cells? But I think there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know yet about you know um, a patient a patient's body uh, rejecting um, even foreign cells that appear not to have an immune response. Um, uh, uh, like like people are injecting today. So yeah, last, last topic. What what do you consider your most ambitious project? The one that really gets you excited the most, or is it with the with it the restoration of tendon function? Well, you know, it's that uh, you know the 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 other product that we have um, is that the same um, tissue building um, fibroblast product that we have also put into a dermatology model. Um, in a, with a clinical study that's being conducted um, over in Dusseldorf, Germany by a leading uh, clinical research site there. Again, looking at whether by the injection of these cells we can rebuild the layer under the skin uh, that we're currently injecting, you know, um, about $2 billion worth of dermal fillers in to temporarily fill uh, that space. We're looking uh, to, uh, at whether or not we can measurably change uh, the layer under the skin that's that acts like the springs under your mattress, right? So if that layer under your skin is rich in collagen, your skin looks healthy and wrinkle-free. As you age, again, the resident fibroblasts aren't capable of keeping up with the 
um, you know, the, the aging mechanism of skin and the, uh, you know, the environmental damage that we expose our skin to. And so that, that layer naturally thins. Um, as that layer right. thins, your skin sags and wrinkles. So we're injecting those cells in to see, can we in fact rebuild that layer and make the skin look younger? So, you know, we've got the hair, the tendon, the skin. Curiously enough, um, you know, it's the way that these trials um, have, have, have enrolled and, and been conducted, we have um, clinical readouts on all three of those trials coming up this month. So this is an enormous quarter, an enormous month for us. We're very excited about, about, about receiving that data, announcing that data, and then making some you know, very critical decisions about what the future of the company looks like and where we invest our resources, um, um, depending on what the data tells us to be excited about, um, most excited about. Yeah. Is it skin? Is it tendon? Is it hair? Certainly, we're pushing all guns forward on the device. And the business model here is one of, of, of creating a, as much value in the early stage research and development pipeline as possible, and then executing on licensing and co-development deals with much larger companies. So we want to replicate across our entire pipeline the kind of deal um, we've done uh, with Shiseido um, for the androgenic alopecia product in Asia. We own the rest of the world on that product, and we own the whole world on our other products. And we've got a number of parties, you know, at the table, keen to see um, um, uh, the data from these trials. And so, you know, the future, uh, you know, the near-term future, um, you know, looks um, you know very exciting for us. We've got, you know, uh, the devices to build and get tested and in the hands of a partner and, and launched. Um, and we've got, um, uh, you know, some very exciting um, um, decisions to make on next phase clinicals and potentially, uh, you know, a deal to be done um, on one of these bio biologics um, as well. One of the other things that we're leveraging is the opportunity that's emerged in Japan um, to commercialize cell therapies like we're developing faster there than anywhere else in the world. And we've got a very advantageous position in Japan, even though we're a small publicly traded company in Vancouver, Canada, traded on the TSX and the OTCQB in the U.S., um, and okay. also on the exchange in Frankfurt. Um, uh, we, you know, we're a, a very small company um, doing some very exciting things. In, we've got the clinical trial in, 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 in tendons uh, in Canada, the dermatology trial in Germany. We've got this collaboration in, uh, with Shiseido in Japan. Um, so we've got a lot of profile in Japan, despite the fact that we're an early um, and uh, you know early stage and um, and and small company uh, based in Canada because of our relationship with Shiseido, um, and because we've spent a lot of time in Japan. So you know we think that with the right kind of data on either tendon or skin, uh, that there might be a you know a par another partnership opportunity emerge out of Japan to do um, a relatively small clinical trial in Japan and get the product on the market there and generating revenues where there's essentially an expedited market access program for cell therapies like uh, like ours. Yeah, I've heard that. So I guess Japan will become the go-to place for companies to get, like you said, expedited revenue producing. Uh, yeah, well, you know, that's what, uh, that's what, you know, that's what the, that was the government's intent. Uh, you know, I think it's an experiment that still mm -hmm. is playing out, um, but certainly it has generated a fair amount of enthusiasm amongst domestic companies there to bring foreign products in and an, and a fair amount of you know interest among foreign companies to see if there's a way um uh, you know to be active in Japan to take advantage of that opportunity how long uh quick question how long has japan's government um how long has the fast track program been around now 
So they they um, um, locked up that legislation. I believe it was uh, in the in the fourth quarter of 2015. Um, and there's only been, you know, there's only been a couple of products approved through that pathway so far, but there's been a number, you know, every quarter we see a few more deals take place in terms, you know, between Japanese companies and foreign companies, um, around cell therapies and around cell therapy activity, um, in Japan. So, you know, it seems to be gathering momentum and doing what Prime Minister Abe and the, and the, and the government there intended. And that was to, you know, to, uh, to incentivize, um, the building of an industry in Japan that didn't exist um, heretofore, and promised not only to in, you know bring a diversification of the economy um, um, uh, and an increased tax base, but also innovative therapies to a very aging demographic. Hmm. Well, very good, Lee. We've covered a lot of really interesting ground. I love the fact that you know how your company and you know you as the leadership thinks and sounds simple, but uh, makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, last question is, how can folks um, get involved and learn more about Replicell, maybe contact you if they have a, you know, a licensing or partnership or you know, any kind of business arrangement they want to talk about? What's the best yeah, way? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we um, all the information on our company is publicly filed um, um, on both CEDAR and EDGAR systems, um, you know, in the, in the, in the U.S. And, and Canada. As I said, we're publicly traded. We're R, the symbol is RP on the Toronto Stock Venture. Um, we're REPCF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Um, and all of our information sits also at our website, uh, replicel, R-E-P-L-I-C-E-L dot com. And my contact information is there, and I'm happy to um, happy to, to engage in, in discussions with anybody who has any interest. Obviously, from an investment point of view, we think it's a very exciting time to be looking at the company with all of the you know very near-term catalysts we've got going on and, um, and the exciting markets we're looking to address. Well, Leah, that's great. Thank you so much for the, for the time. I appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate appreciate your interest and um, and look forward to follow up. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 